Carrington, welcome back to the show. It has been months. I know. I'm so happy to be back. It's Fantastic. so lovely to have you. You're looking bright, you're looking bubbly, <laughs> and you're going to bring us a very cool story and a very cool interview today. A warm and fuzzy story. So, look, there's been a book written by Gina Dawson. This is the author. And it's about a whole group of stories of how these pets, a local hero pets, have been able to help their community or their owners in terms of life needs. Oh, that's beautiful. Can't wait for that. Oh, hello, David Tabbert. Sorry, you were here recently. <laughs> <laughs> nice I've, to see you I've too. been here for half an hour. What's going on? <laughs> Sitting back here, relaxed, just taking it all in. Dr David Tabbert, because he was here so early. 49216216 is the number. Right now, though, Daniel Carrington, he's back in the studio, which is amazing to have him in. And he's uh, lined up an interview with author Gina Dawson. Thanks, Sarah. Look, Gina's written a book called With a Dog's Love, Clever Dogs Helping Humans. Isn't this... Oh, this that is, sounds amazing. Yeah, ex exactly. That's what I thought. A little bit about Gina. She's a former teacher and counsellor who presented programs on a variety of social issues in schools for 15 years. She's a lifelong lover of dogs, uh, an experienced trainer, uh, and she does particularly want to look at things with, um, yeah, in the sector of uh, particular interest for her is mental health. Mm -hmm. And this is where this stems from. Gina, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you for asking me. So, look, I just have a few few questions for you about your book. Um, in terms of the book itself, what inspired you to write this book? Um, interestingly, it came from previous books. I'd written a series of picture books about assistants and working dogs for younger children. And as a result of that, I started uh, receiving emails from through my website from customers or schools who would send me photographs or stories about their own dogs. And uh, some of those stories were really lovely and very inspirational. And as time went on, I decided I'll just send out a general call for stories and see what comes in uh, with a view to writing a book of true inspirational stories for older readers. And, and that was the beginning of With a Dog's Love. Wow. Now, when you, I guess, putting the book, like I always like to talk on our show here about particular breeds and what they were bred to do. So this sort of ties in with this dog's love and how they've been able to help humans. What kind of hero dogs did you find coming across in your journey of uh, doing your research for your book? Um, there was a huge variety of dogs and um, a lot of them are dogs that although they're heroes to us, they, they're not front-page news dogs. They're just quiet dogs that get on with their daily job. Um, we had everything from a, a kindergarten dog who would go to the kindy and soothe children um, and take part in the activities through to school dogs. And then on a more serious na uh, note, we had seizure, a seizure alert dog that made a profound difference to a family, um, hearing assistance dogs for the deaf, Autism dogs, um, dogs that assist veterans and others with PTSD. Um, and we even had a live find specialist dog. He, he is trained to find people in earthquakes and so on. Wow. So, yeah, the list goes on. Um, all lots of amazing dogs doing different work. Um, I just love, I always love finding out how we humans really rely on on, on dogs, on our pets, and this book just covers that ground. I guess in your book, 
Um, can you tell us two of your most favourite stories of these hero dogs? Uh, people do ask me that. It's so impossible to have a favourite. Every story was so unique and every person I worked with was such fun and, and such an inspiration. Uh, the first dog in the book, did um, Bryn, the live spine specialist dog, who was lucky to survive it all as he was dumped a little puppy, uh, went on to be one of the most elite live find dogs um, rescuing people in times of disaster. So that one was a pretty special story, and that one appears first. But by the same token, the last book in the series, which is a bit of a twist in the tale, is about Hunter, who's a Labrador. And it's actually the dog that has the disability. Hunter is deaf, and the story is about how his people uh, helped him to... Uh, to become a happy dog. so It's almost the reverse there. The human helps the animal. Yeah, it's, it's gorgeous. And it was just such a lovely twist to the, to the end of the book for the children or the readers. Um, but in between, there's 14 other fabulous dogs yeah. as well all doing their own thing, so I really can't pick. Yeah. <laughs> just one last thing very quickly. We can be brief. What is the most powerful thing you can take away from your investigation of writing this book? Um, I think we all know about how dogs make a difference, but having worked so closely with 16 individuals with 16 dogs, just the impact of those dogs, not only on the life of those individuals, but their families and the community is just astounding and the ripple effect just goes on. That sounds amazing, doesn't it? Yeah, I like it. It's just so warm. Gina Dawson, thank you so much for giving us some details on the book. And, Denny, thank you for bringing it to us today. Welcome. It's a lovely way to start Pet Chat. 49216216 is the number. Now we're going to go to Steve. You've got to do some work now. David, okay? Was that I'll all wake right? up. Okay. Steve's in <laughs> Hamilton. Steve, thank you for phoning the show. You've got a five-year-old King Charles Spaniel uh, and he's going to the toilet on the tiles instead of the grass. Yeah, good afternoon, everyone. What a, what a sensational day. Uh, yeah, look, I've just <laughs> I've just laid some uh, new uh, pavers around the backyard and the, the little princess, she won't go to the grass. She, she decides she wants to do a business uh, on, the, on the pavers themselves. And I'm just wondering, is there any way I can encourage her you know, to, to maybe go out in the yard and, and do a business. Um, how long have you had had your dog for? I've had her for about four years, four yeah. and a half years. She's, she's, a, she's a rescue dog, um, but I think she was well-treated. The lady that she would belong to before just couldn't... Uh, she had some issues, so she couldn't deal with the dog anymore, yeah. so we, we uh, inherited the dog from her. Yeah. And the area that you've put down the pavers, was that grass before or was it... Yes, it was. Sort of... Yes, it was grass. It was. Yes. I mean, yes. so, some of that could be the habit of just saying, well, this is the place that I go to. Um, the other thing is that whenever you disrupt the, the ground and the soil, it brings up a whole lot of new smells. Um, uh, you've changed this physical environment. And in some ways that induces a degree of anxiety, a bit of stress. And so okay. dogs can often, um, you know, perform their toilet uh, habits in inappropriate places. So some of it may well be related to the fact that it's all very new Um the other thing is that some dogs will, uh, pray, you know, perform a oh, wrong word, of course, go to the toilet in the wrong place because they may have a physical problem. They may have a urinary tract infection, which means they're not actually making it to the grass. Okay. Um, so there is that possibility. The other thing is that um, what you need to probably need to do in the short term is to actually 
carry your dog over to the grass. Um, I know, like, she's five and so on, but... She'll if, like that if she's a princess. She, <laughs> carry her over that so that, you know, you're kind of supervising that she is going to go there. And it's really, I know that's not going to stop it completely, but it is establishing a bit more of a habit for her. And you might need to be doing that for, you know, a week or two, um, as long as all those other things check out that she doesn't have a health problem as well. Belinda's phoned in from Talara. Belinda, you have an amazing story for us following on from Daniel Carrington's uh, chat with the author earlier. I, I do, actually. Um, we have we had a um, King Charles Cavalier Spaniel and she wouldn't kiss anybody or lick anybody or any of that stuff except for our young daughter. And then our daughter um, came down with type 1 diabetes and she would only lick her and wake us up in the middle of the night if she was having a hypo and needed help. And she would do that with all of her friends. And I would say to people, look, if, if my dog licks you, I'm sorry, but I'm calling you an ambulance because you're a diabetic. And they would look at me and I would say, look, I'm sorry, but it's just what she does. Yes. And she did. And we would have lots of kids come over that also had type 1 diabetes. And the dog, sure enough, she'd go and, you know, she'd go and tell me if they needed help. It was great. And wow. she wasn't trained to do that. She just did it. No, no. And she's since passed away and we have her, we now have her uh, granddaughter nieces and they don't do it. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 it was amazing. always fascinating why she would do that. Have you got any idea why? Oh, it's an amazing story. It's fantastic. Um, one of the things that happens with uh, diabetics, now I'm a vet, not a human doctor, so, but it's similar, is that... Um, we produce ketones, which are a byproduct of fat metabolism, which ki- kicks in when your blood sugar's low. And the ketones are a volatile acid, so they actually do come out in the breath. And obviously, uh, this little dog was just really attuned to that smell. Um, yeah, to be able to alert you. Yeah, that's amazing. That is an amazing thing. And obviously, just identifying that something's off here. You know, this the mm. smell's not a good smell. Yeah, well, I mean, as we know, dogs have, you know, a sense of smell. Mm. Some people say a thousand times more sensitive than ours. Yeah. So it makes sense, right? certainly does. Thank you so much, Belinda, for sharing that story. Mm. That is a really, really uh, fantastic story to hear. You're you're in Gresford. Welcome. You've got a dog that's snoring very loudly. Yes, and has for a long, long time. What sort of dog have you got, Lynn? It's a Lassa Apso. King Charles Spaniel. Right. So you've taken, we've got two dog breeds that in themselves will have or are at a higher risk of having breathing disorders. And obviously a crossbreed is going to be left with the same problems. Um, and how old's your dog? Oh, think about four. Oh, okay. So not that old. And the snoring's been there for quite a while, you said. Yeah. And at least two, three years. Now, what about breathing during the day? Um, I think she's okay. It's at rest. Yes, okay. Um, so what's happening is that in the back of the throat, the soft palate is actually sitting over the top of the larynx. And as the air moves in through the larynx and down into the trachea and the lungs, um, it's actually vibrating the soft palate, and that's the snoring. So it often happens when they're breathing in or breathing out. Some dogs, it's both. Um, one of the things is that, um, this can have long-term consequences. 
um, it can actually go on to cause problems with obviously breathing all together and periods of um, low oxygen in the, in their blood because they're not breathing properly. It can also induce a problem with uh, a thing called the laryngeal saccules, which are sitting inside the voice box, and um, they can actually be sucked out into the airway as a result oh. as a result of this chronic um, pressure difference that's occurring. And also dogs that do have these upper airway problems that we're talking about um, will have a higher risk of actually uh, stomach problems and they can get a higher risk of reflux and things like that. So depending on the circumstances, some of these dogs will benefit from having surgery and a lot of them have, uh, in addition to the soft palate, they can often have problems with the nostrils. And even though you kind of say, oh, no, the nostrils are good, but in essence, a lot of those dogs will have a degree of obstruction of the nostrils. And if we fix both of them, then usually they're going to be fine from then on. So, David, it's worth getting further investigations done with, with your local vet. Yeah, sometimes we kind of think it's a bit, you know, cute and so on, although it tends to wake us up. Yeah. But, um, but it is actually a concern that needs Medical to get checked concern. out. Yep. Thank you so much, Lynn, for the call. We're going to go to Jeff now in Rutherford. Now, Jeff, you've got two dogs. Uh, am I right in saying they used to get along but don't anymore? Yeah, I've got a 14-year-old and an 8-year-old. Mm. And what actually happens is the younger of the two, we raised her up from a puppy sort of thing, and she used to play with the, the older one. Yep. But now she just gets so jealous now that she all she wants to do is take a chunk of her, if you know what I mean, like wants to fight her all the time. So we've got to keep them separated, and we keep both in the bedroom because they're not outdoor dogs and what do you call it? They're not an outdoor dog. They've been raised inside. Yep, yep. But they only go out for their business, if you know what I mean. Now, what, what about dinner time? What do you do at dinner time? Well, we have to serve them separate. So we have to leave one in the cage and one on the bed. Yeah. Oh, what? So we keep, them, we keep them separated even when they eat. They won't even share when they eat anymore. Uh, yeah, most dogs actually aren't real happy about sharing. I mean, some of them do, for sure. But um, they do that as a part of their social behaviour to maintain the group. Um, and so as soon as there's an area where, you know, they're starting to have a bit of conflict, then it'll spread into other areas like food and things like that. Now, did you just say you feed one of the dogs on the bed? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, because one of the things that could be an issue here is that, that is that the younger dog or the older dog? Just depends on the day in question. Oh, we right. around quite regularly. Because yeah. we're thinking it might think it's the king pin being well, fed above. It's, just, it's certainly being, it's not so much the height, although that's part of it, but it's actually, well, that's the area where we sleep and also that's where Jeff sleeps. So this certainly does say, you know, I'm closer to Jeff than what you are. Oh. I would suggest that having, keeping both dogs separate, but actually, you know, different rooms, not not near the bedroom at all. Um, one of I the can't thing... keep them separated in the bedrooms, though, because they just scratch at the door. No, but just for dinner time, first of all. That's what oh, I'm saying. Right. Just for dinner time. Because um, I think we need to just reduce some of these signals that the dogs are getting that is triggering some of these behaviours. The other thing is it's the younger dog attacking the older dog. Is that what you said? Yeah, younger dog's attacking the older dog. See, the older dog's going blind. She's already yeah. blind in one eye. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah. Got much sight left in her other eye now. I think one of the things too is also increasing the amount of distraction and exercise for the younger dog. So walks, um, you know, throw toys that you can, if they're starting to misbehave or getting a bit too antsy close to each other, getting some sort of toy that you can distract them and use that rather than just kind of rousing on them and taking one away, giving them something else to focus on. Increasing. Not that we rouse on them, we just try and separate them, and then when I try to pull away the youngest one to stop it from biting the older one, yeah, he wants to then turn around and snap it and try and bite me. Yeah, oh. as soon as when dogs are really agitated, and yeah. that's why we've got to get really smart about reading the signals and knowing what are the circumstances, what are the triggers, and making sure that we can take that preventative behaviour before any of that really starts to escalate. So the first trigger is the feeding, feeding them in well, separate that's, rooms. Well, that's certainly one issue, but also I think, um, you know, the dogs being close to each other, close to Jeff, they're in the house. There's just so much messaging that's going on about, you know, who's closer to who. Right. Yeah, all the time. Okay. So let's increase the exercise for the younger one, distraction toys, separate the feeding, and hopefully that'll just reduce the overall tension Okay, so we're going to Joanne in Mount Hutton. Joanne, what's your uh, question or issue that you would hope to have resolved with David today? I have a two-year-old. Have you got a radio on, Joanne? Sorry to interrupt. We've just got some feedback. Yeah, I've got a two-year-old chihuahua that just doesn't like other dogs. I can take it to the dog park um, and, yeah, she just won't have a bar. Mm. she, she She will run away. But then, as soon as they turn, they turn around. She'll, you know, she'll run back at them. And how, uh, is she desexed? Your dog? Yes, yes. She is. Okay. Um, have you had her since she was a pup? Yes. Yeah. Well, the the response that you're talking about. I mean, with dogs, they're just going to respond in a fairly primitive fashion. In that, um, she's obviously fearful, and the dog park is an extremely, particularly to a little dog very overwhelming you know there's a it's a big area there's lots of smells um and then you've got these other dogs that are running around off a leash so there's even when the bigger dog is running towards you you don't really know what that intent is unless you've had a lot of socialization so you know to be defensive and to kind of protect myself i'm either going to run away or i'm going to turn and say back off buddy um, by barking and carrying on so we've, if we think about it just in those terms that this is a response to fear, that her behaviour is really motivated by protecting herself, mm-hmm. then we kind of recognise that actually, you know, the dog park might be a step too far. We're not really ready for that yet. Okay. Um, and even things like you mentioned, say, if we go down the street, other dogs might bark because they're saying hello or are they just saying don't come near my yard even that could itself be a little bit triggering. Um, I'm not saying, I think walking down the street is going to be a good way to kind of introduce the idea of, you know, other dogs are out there, they're not all going to hurt you, but it is going to take some time. The good news is that you've got a two-year-old dog and not a 12-year-old dog, um, because I think it means that with some training, you're going to be able to improve the way that she responds with other dogs. Um, oh, that's good. <laughs> now, did she have puppy preschool? Uh, no, no. Yeah, this is one, one of the things that we see, particularly with little, uh, well, 
dogs that are maybe in that puppyhood stage up to about four or five months. And we've had COVID, so isolation well, this as well. Is, yeah, this is a real concern for lots of vets is because people got dogs during the pandemic years and they didn't really have an opportunity to get into puppy preschool. So they missed this critical window, window of socialisation and that is that kind of 12 to 26-week um, period, 20-week period, yep. which is from three to five months. Um, however, as I said, two-year-old dog, still a chance to be able to introduce some um, controlled exposure. So I would be talking to some local dog clubs and finding out about some dog obedience. And you kind of think, well, you know, she's well-behaved for me. It's really about putting her in a controlled environment where she will see other dogs that are, you know, responding and not interested in her. Mm -hmm. And then she also has something to focus on, which is learning the things that you're teaching her. That's the way to get her to calm down, you know, and then 12 months later she can go back to uh, the dog park. It's time to look at our uh, dog of the week. Oh, this is a cutie patootie buddy. He's not little though. Uh, he is scruffy by nature and he is a buddy by nature because he's just a lovable larrikin. He's a dashingly handsome two-year-old wolfhound cross. Dashingly handsome? He is, isn't he? I think I'm going to use that on my uh, profile. What profile? Tinder? <clears throat> no. <laughs> I'm well married, thank you very much, I know, Sarah. and Linda's you absolutely beautiful. But dashingly handsome. It's I'm, nice, isn't it? Yeah. He is dashingly. He looks like a bit of a schmoozer as well. Uh, he's a gorgeous brindle boy with a mohawk running down his spine. He's, he's, a, cool, he's a cool cat, although he's, he's a dog. Um, so he has some funny antics. He loves running around doing zoomies in the yard. And zoomies are fun, aren't they? We have a big giggle when they do zoomies. They are, but perplexing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Why? What's going on? Yeah. It's the equivalent to us just going, oh my God, I'm so excited. I'm going to get some energy out. Yeah, I don't do that. You don't? <laughs> no. You're pretty cool. I do. Yes. Yeah, okay. you can probably imagine that. Um, besides all of these funny quirks, he's also very smart, learns fast and loves a pat and a walk. If you are a runner, he would make a great running partner. I reckon he'd probably push you as well to keep that pace up. He's a smart young man. He needs stimulus, exercise and ongoing training to encourage his development. He's a little toy obsessed and this is where he needs to work on his manners. Since he's come into the shelter with the volunteers, they've watched Buddy change and grow from an anxious pup to a lovable young man. As much as we all love him and enjoy our time spent walking and training Buddy, it is time for him to find his family or best mate. So Buddy would be happy to have a dog, best friend, so he gets on really well with other dogs, which is such a bonus. Excellent. That is excellent. But, um, he, but he doesn't like black umbrellas. Doesn't he like black umbrellas? No. Did you read and, that down yeah. there? Did you make that up? No, no, no. That's on, on the 2NUR page. You can go and have a read. It's a wonderful story. Dashingly handsome. Um, <laughs> but no black umbrellas. So he's he's got a personality. He that's, does. That's what I'm reading. He does. He's personality plus. I wonder if he likes red umbrellas. Yeah, it does say that. I've been trying to find it the whole time. I need my glasses. <laughs> he gets anxious around black umbrellas. There you go. That's funny. Well, any other colours fine, though, I would That's imagine. That's right. Go check him out. He's beautiful. Now, look, let's get to our uh, email oh, yes. question. Um, this is from Nicholas. Now, he has a black cat called Mickey. He's a boy. 
um, and he was three in September. They think he's a rag doll and he has a urine infection and he keeps wetting the bed. Um, so they're trying to get him to drink water, but he's not drinking much and they're wondering whether putting some bone broth in it will help. They're also feeding him some specific cat formula food to help as well, mm -hmm. um, to help with the infection. And he's just wondering whether you've got any other tips on what to do. It's a pretty common question, actually. And we've talked a little bit earlier today about um, our pets when there's inappropriate urination. And cats tend to do this more than we see, certainly in dogs. I think that the um, some of the things that we're hearing there is about the bone broth and so on, is to encourage an increased water intake. And what that's trying to do is to actually flush out uh, infection and also flush out uh, any buildup of crystals or uh, stones in the in the urine as well. So the more water, the better to really it, get that out it, of the yeah, system. Yeah, it dilutes. Mm. It dilutes the urine. So yes, they will produce more, but if we can reduce the irritation, and that's really one of the things that contributes to this um, habit of inappropriate urination. The other thing I always talk to people about is um, you can do the dietary adjustments, certainly water. Just remember, cats aren't a natural water drinker, though. Yeah, so how can you promote the drinking of well, water? Well, I think the bone broth is probably a good shot. Okay. You can go with that. Yeah, okay, it's going to taste better. It's to not the a bad cat. idea. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people sometimes uh, will give tuna in spring water that, or the brine. Brine's probably oh, too salty, actually. Okay. But in the spring water, might be okay. Yes, okay, so get a little tin of tuna in spring water. And, in spring and water, yeah. And there you use go. That. That's another idea, Nicholas, if the bone broth doesn't um, yes. get the desired result. Importantly, I would want to emphasise is that you need make sure we've got the right number of litter trays, even if he's not using them, obviously. We need to have one per cat plus one. So if you've got two cats in the house, three litter trays, different places around the house. And also look into Feliway uh, spray, which is a, a pheromone that calms them down. So those kind of things are going to help him get over this episode of a urinary tract infection. Excellent advice as always. Dr. David Tabret. that's it for Pet Chat today. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for all of the calls as well.